0: So, this morning, we're going to actually begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 9, the very last verse, verse 38. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning there in verse 38. We're not going to read the whole chapter, we're going to jump around a little bit. So, let's just look at this first verse. It says In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders. Levites and priests. I want you to jump over to chapter 10, verse 28. Nehemiah says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God, given through God's servant Moses, and to obey carefully all the commands and ordinances and statutes statutes of the Lord. It's not going to be on the screen, but I want you to look at the very last line in the chapter, the very last sentence. It says, "We will not neglect the house of God." And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of a faith that is committed faith that is committed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I first want to lift up our brothers and sisters who aren't here with us this morning, whatever is going on in their lives, Lord, to pray that even this morning, wherever they are, that they would be worshiping you in spirit and in truth. But God, I thank you for the brothers and sisters who are here. And Lord, I, I ask that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Faith that is committed. So I don't know if you know this, but Michael Phelps is without question the greatest Olympian of all time. Uh, I'm not going to argue that. Okay, This is the word of God. Michael Phelps, without question, is the greatest Olympian of all time. I'll prove it to you. He is the most decorated Olympian ever with 23 gold medals, three silver medals, and two bronze medals for a grand total of 28. Now, mind you, that is 10 more medals than the next closest person. He is the greatest Olympian. For years, Michael Phelps awed crowds as he continued to win at the highest level possible. And for many of us, myself included, the only thing we ever saw of Michael Phelps was those few minutes in the pool during his race. What we didn't see was the commitment that took place day in and day out for decades to get him there. Michael Phelps made his first Olympic appearance at the age of 15. And to compete at such a high level, Phelps Phelps had one of the most rigorous training schedules you can imagine. I started researching it this week. So during his peak training times, listen to this, he would train in the pool for six hours a day, typically swimming, 80,000 meters a week. That's roughly 50 miles every week. In addition, he would spend additional hours in the weight room honing the muscles necessary to swim at such a blistering pace. Now, in order to sustain such a high physical demand, Phelps, Phelps would consume. I keep calling Phelps. Phelps would consume around 12,000 calories a day. Now, mind you, that's nearly six times more than what the average person eats in a day. But what Phelps understood was that if he was going to pursue being the greatest Olympian ever, he had to be committed to the task. If he was going to move forward in the sport and continue to succeed, it would require a commitment that was all-encompassing. It was his life. His commitment mattered. Now, Maybe, maybe that example doesn't resonate with you. I'm not a sports fan. That's what you're saying. That's fine. We've all got struggles. It's not just athletes. Take, for example, Thomas Edison. On January twenty seventh, 1880, Thomas Edison received the historic patent for his incandescent lamp that paved the way for the universal domestic use of electric light. In other words, the light bulb. Edison is famous, though, not only for the light bulb, but also for his quote when he was asked prior to developing a working light bulb about the countless failures he was enduring. Some of you have heard this quote. Edison said, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. See, Edison was committed to this discovery, and as a result, when you flip on a light switch, light comes on. In addition to this... Edison actually holds the world records for the most patents with over 1,000 patents in his name. Commitment is what I'm trying to get you to see, that regardless of the field or discipline is necessary if any progress is going to be made. But this truth stands not just for athletes and inventors, but it stands for our faith as well. If you and I are going to be a people whose faith is moving forward, a people who day in and day out look more like Jesus... It will require a genuine commitment, not a commitment to faith itself, but rather a commitment to the God whom we place our faith in. And this morning, what what we see in Nehemiah chapter 10 is a faith that is committed to God and his ways. It is a faith that has been restored and a faith that is committed to honoring God for all that he has done. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk through Nehemiah 10. And I just want to point out three significant revelations that we see about a committed faith. Three, three truths we can pull out. There's more that we could pull out, but I just want to give you three. And these truths, they're significant because they don't just apply to the people of God in Nehemiah chapter 10. If we are going to have a committed faith, they must apply to us as well. So here's, here's the, first, the first revelation that I want you to see. is that a committed faith is proper. A committed faith is proper. Look again at chapter 9, verse 38, where we started. It says, in view of all this, we're making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. So those those first five words are very important. In view of all this. See, their commitment, this is what I want you to see, it wasn't random. It wasn't that they woke up one day and said today would be a great day to make a binding agreement with the Lord and with one another. It wasn't random. It was the only proper response, but a response to what? Well, again, in view of all this. The this they are refer, referring to there is all that's transpired throughout the seventh month. Beginning in chapter 8, running through chapter 9, what we've talked about over the last few weeks. So let me, let me remind you of that. So in, in chapter 8, we learn in verse 1 that all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. And this is on the first day of the seventh month. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. So Ezra begins to read the law to them. And he reads for hours on end. And while he's reading, the priests and the Levites are explaining the law to the people and all who had understanding. And as a response to the law being read, the people begin to weep and mourn. You remember? Why? Well, because they're forced to reckon with their sin in a holy God. But the leaders tell the people in chapter 8, verse 9, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. And then they say in verse 10, go eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, send portions to those who have nothing prepared since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve because the joy of the Lord is your strength you see, this was supposed to be a time of celebration. The first day of the seventh month inaugurated the Feast of Booths. Now, if you remember what that feast is, we talked about it a few weeks ago. During this feast, the people of God would literally go out and build shelters. And then they would live in those shelters. And it was to be a celebration and a remembrance of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. Because while the people of God were in the wilderness, they didn't have... Houses to live live in. They built huts and shelters. And so this was a celebration and a remembrance. It was a reminder that God was with his people in the wilderness. It's a reminder that at every step of the way, God has been their salvation. So the people celebrate. They remember the deliverance of God and they celebrate. But then you get to chapter 9, which is 24 days later, still in the seventh month. And once again, the law is read. They spend six hours listening to the law. But then they spend six hours in confession of their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They are aware that the reason they were in exile, the reason Jerusalem was destroyed, the reason they are facing the hardship they are facing is not because God had failed them. It's because of their sin and the sin of those who had gone before them. But then in verse 6 of chapter 9, something amazing happens. We focused on it last week. Ezra begins to pray. And it is a prayer in response to the confession of sin. But in that prayer, something significant happens. We pointed it out last week. Though their sin and the need for confession is the catalyst for the prayer, as the prayer begins, remember, the emphasis is not actually on their sin. The emphasis is on the faithfulness of God throughout the entirety of their existence. They see the work of God, the love of God, and the steadfastness of God at every turn. So they declare in chapter 9, verse 17, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in faithful love, and you did not abandon them. They recognize in verse 19, you did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. They worship in verse 31, the fact that in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and a compassionate God. Though they are a people that has gotten it wrong at every turn. God has never left them. God has never forsaken them. And God has never abandoned them. So, chapter 9, verse 38, in view of all this. We are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. They are committing their mouths, their hands, their actions, their possessions, their very lives to this great God because God has been so good to them. So for some of you, that didn't seem to do it for you. That's the best I got. I just walked through Scripture, but let me try to say it it like this. They have been through some stuff as the people of God. They'd been on the mountaintop and they'd been in the lowest valley. But it didn't matter height or depth. It doesn't matter season or circumstance. It doesn't matter whether they were experiencing the promise or waiting on the promise. In every moment, in every circumstance, in every season, God has proven himself faithful and good. God has proven himself gracious and merciful. God has proven himself to be a God of steadfast, always present, never-ending love. And in light of everything they have seen, in light of everything they've heard, in light of everything they know and they've experienced, the only right response, the only proper response is to say, we are going to commit our lives lives to this God who has always been faithful listen to me if this was the only proper response for them then what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is this is the only proper response for you because God is still faithful and good God is still gracious and merciful God is still a God of steadfast always present never changing love and I know it's true because when I was at my worst I've seen God as at his best when I was running from God, I can see God running after me. When I was in those quiet moments of despair and no one could see the turmoil in my soul, God was near to me in my broken brokenheartedness. I know it's true. And you might be thinking, well, that's good for you, but you don't know my story, Michael. You don't know what I've been through. Listen to me. I don't need to know your story because I know Jesus. And if you've ever doubted, that God is faithful and good, that he is gracious and compassionate, that he is a God of never-ending, never-changing, never-ceasing love, you can look to Jesus because Jesus is the promises of God fulfilled. Jesus, as the sin-bearing, curse-breaking, death-defeating Savior on our behalf, is the grace and mercy of God made known. Jesus is the living, breathing testimony that for God so loved the world. And what I'm trying to get you to see is is that like the people of God in Nehemiah 10, we've seen some stuff. We have experienced some stuff. We too have been on the mountaintop and we've been in the lowest valley and God has never left us and he has never forsaken us. Though we've rebelled, God has provided a way through Jesus for us to continuously be right with God. The God who was is the God who is and he is the God who will forevermore will be. And if all this is true, then what could be more proper in view of all this? Then we're gonna commit our ways to the Lord. Their commitment was the only proper response. But just so we're clear, this binding agreement that they're making in verse 38, it's not something new. The word there in Hebrew, I'm not going to get too far into it, it's actually a really interesting Hebrew word because there is a word for covenant, but it's not that word. It's a word for agreement. Because they're not making a new covenant. Rather, it is them recommitting to the covenant that God had already established with Moses. It is a declaration that they will honor what God has called the people of God to do. They will keep the law. They will be obedient to all that God has commanded them. But I don't want you to miss the progression of this. Because I think there's some wisdom in it. This all started, Pastor Jesse gave me this phrase. He walked out, so I'll praise him now. It's a great phrase. This all started with the rediscovery of the law, with the rediscovery of the Word of God. And so they begin to read the Word of God in chapter 8. Now watch this. As they read the Word of God, the Word of God begins to read them. Because you know the Bible is the only book that you can read that will read you. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It will pierce to the heart, to bone, to the marrow. The Bible is the only book that you will read that will read you. And the Bible does what the Bible always does, and it starts to read the people of God. And they are convicted of their sin and their failure. They were convicted by the mistakes that they had made. But then, in light of that, they were still called to celebrate the God who delivers. And they're reminded in that celebration of God's faithfulness to always come through. And then they go back to the word again, and they're convicted of their sin again. But now they go back in conviction with a greater confidence because they can look back and see God's deliverance, so they believe that God will deliver them now. And so they begin to pray, and as they begin to pray in chapter 9, they see more and more of the faithfulness of God, and as a result, the most natural thing for them to do in light of all of this is to commit their lives to the Lord. So watch this. This is what I'm trying to get you to see. Their worship led to their commitment, not the other way around their worship led to their commitment. Their commitment didn't lead to their worship. Because when you are focused on all, the Lord, all that the Lord has done for you, it starts to stir something up within you. It starts to, to make some movement in your hands happen. And, and they start to meet one another, right? And, and then you start to think about the goodness of God and there's this feeling that starts to bubble up right right in your chest and it just kind of moves up and it moves from your mouth and and then it gets in your saliva and then it moves to your tongue and then it just comes out of your mouth as a shout of praise that God has been so good to me and then your body just can't seem to be still because as you focus on God it just moves you to say he is good and he is great he has been kind he has been faithful he has never left me he has never abandoned me and he never will he's just that good and this worship starts to flow out of you. But out of that worship comes a commitment that if God is that good, I want all of my life to be marked by a praise of a God who's been so kind to me. See, when you are honest about the fact that you have been faithless, but God has been faithful, when you are in awe of the, of the grace and mercy of God shown for you on the cross, it will lead you to commit to God. So let me, let me say it like this. You will never be committed to a God that you don't think is good. You will never be committed to a God that you don't think is faithful. And the goal of faithful, faithfulness isn't simply to force commitment. The goal is to see God for who he truly is and then the most natural thing will happen. You will be committed to the Lord. I know, I, I know I'm right because I see the Pharisees. They were committed to the law of God. But there was no worship. There was no praise, there was no recognition of the faithfulness and the goodness of God, and Jesus himself condemns their commitment as false and fake as whitewashed tombs. But again, the goal of faithfulness isn't necessarily to force commitment, the goal is to see God for true for who He truly is, and then the most natural thing will be to commit to God, because if you see God as a good father, if you see God as a generous provider, if you see God as a loving creator, if you see God as slow to anger and abounding in compassion, if you see God as near to the brokenhearted, if you see God for who he truly is, the proper response, the only reasonable response will be to commit your life to this God. So their commitment was proper. It was the only proper response. But I want you to see something else. Not only was their commitment proper, their committed faith was public. Committed faith is public. So in in chapter 38, they make a binding agreement. I've done a great job with all the names over the past week, so I'm going to let you read verses 1 through 27 all by yourself. And I'm just going to summarize what they say, amen? So in verse 1, the agreement is first sealed by Nehemiah, that's the governor, we know who Nehemiah is, and, and Zedekiah, and so that's an official under Nehemiah, so, so almost like our lieutenant governor. And so, so they're the first people, and they, they seal this agreement. And then in verses 2 through 8, you have the active priests seal it as well. Now, the names that are listed in verses 2 through 8 actually represent ancestral families of the priests. Those aren't the specific names of priests, they represent the families of all the priests. So, this isn't just an individual priest, they're sealing it for the whole community of priests. But then in verses 9 through 13, you have the rest of the Levites. Again, some of these are just family names that that are bigger than just an individual. But within that list in 9 through 13, you do have some individual names. But then in verses 14 through 27, you have local leaders in Jerusalem sealing the document as well. So you see in this progression, right? It's almost from the top down, the governor, Nehemiah, his assistant. Then you have the priests, then you have the Levites, then you have the local leaders. But then finally, you get to verse 28 and you read this. And then the rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God, join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our Lord. Now, I don't want you to miss the public nature of this commitment. This commitment was made not in the confines of their own homes. It wasn't simply made between them internally as they prayed to God, God, I'm going to commit my ways to you. And that is significant. We need that. But that's not what this is. Everything about this commitment, everything about this covenant renewal was public. There are two reasons why the public commitment is significant. There are two reasons why your public commitment to God is significant. First, it's significant for the other people making the commitment with you. You see, the public nature of this commitment was not merely for show. This wasn't just pageantry. It was for accountability. Because if I commit publicly with my brothers and sisters around me to follow the laws and the ordinances of God, I'm not only committing before God, I'm committing before you as well. Which means if I fail, it's not just the Lord's responsibility to hold me accountable. It's your responsibility as well. One commentator is helpful when he explains it like this. He says, the public nature of this binding agreement invites accountability not only to God but to one another. It emphasizes the corporate commitment of the people. So let me explain it like this. We don't just need one another when it comes to encouragement, right? We also need one another when it comes to correction, We need one another to have those hard conversations for our good when we are clearly missing the mark in regards to holiness. Now, what this will require is that we actually care more about holiness than we do our own ego. But can I just tell you, church, this is the way that God designed the Christian life. This is the way that God designed a life committed to Him, this is how He designed it to work. That same commentator goes on and he writes this. He says, the emphasis of the scriptures in both testaments, so old and new, is the corporate commitment of the people of God. And then he says, the person who says, y'all have heard this, right? The person who says they are only accountable to God and not to one another in the body of Christ has either neglected the reading of the scriptures or just chosen to ignore or disregard it. Because you cannot read through the Bible and think that this is just an individual faith. There is a corporate accountability. I mean, we see this very thing in Galatians 2, do we not? With the apostles themselves. You remember Galatians 2? So back in the book of Acts, I think it's around Acts 10, 15, God makes it clear to Peter that Gentiles are to be welcomed into the family of God without having to follow follow the Jewish rituals that Gentiles are welcome into the fold. We praise God for that, right? Because barring one of us, as far as I know, all of us are Gentiles. So that means that we are, in, we are invited into the family of God without having to follow Jewish law and tradition, right? So Peter knows all of this. God has come down. He's told him. He shows him two very significant things. First, he says that, that what was once unclean, you can now eat. Praise God, bacon's back on the menu, right? Like Peter's day was better at that moment. But the other thing that he sees that is more compelling is he sees the Holy Spirit indwelling Gentiles. Yeah. So Peter knows yeah. that Gentiles can be saved by grace through faith in Christ without having to follow the Jewish law. But then you get to Galatians 2. And Peter's chilling at Antioch. And Antioch is one of the most multicultural places, right? Praise God. That's that's part of the reason Paul was trained there, because God was creating a multicultural church, a multi ethnic, a multi socioeconomic. He was creating a beautiful mosaic that would be his people, right? And so that's where Paul's trans, where Peter's chilling. And he's hanging out with the Gentiles, and it says, Then some people were sent from James. Now, James is kind of the head of the Jerusalem council, right? So I don't know, it might be a better way to say it, but he's like the Jew of Jews. That, that's, that's who he is. His word matters. And so when he sends people, to Peter, the implication of the text is he's sending them to question Peter about how he's interacting with the Gentiles. And what does Peter do? He begins to pull back from the Gentiles. The text tells us because he was afraid of those from the circumcision party. There's a lot going on in Galatians chapter 2. If you want to know my full understanding of it, read my dissertation when it's done. But anyway, what's happening is that he is elevating his culture above the gospel. And so what does Paul do? Paul confronts him publicly to his face. Why? Because of the covenant commitment the people of God had made to one another. Paul doesn't hate Peter. Paul loves Peter. He loves him so much that he will call out his sin publicly. And he says, because you have offended the very gospel of Jesus Christ. If the apostles needed accountability and correction, who are we to think that we don't? But even more, who are we to not welcome it? See, in Nehemiah 10, the public nature of their commitment is for their accountability. But it is also for their encouragement. Because sometimes, church, let's be honest, though our primary motivation for committing to God ought to be the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, sometimes we forget that. And sometimes it's others' commitment to Jesus that can be the very thing that stirs us on to continue in our commitment to the Lord, amen? That didn't, I mean, maybe that's just me, i preach to myself, so I'll speak as a pastor. Part of my commitment to God, I know this, part of my commitment to God, my specific commitment, is to be faithful to what God has called me to do, and, and in this season, that is to be a pastor. That's part of me being faithful to the Lord. I like it, yeah, I love being a pastor, but it is primarily because the Lord has called me to do it, and I'm gonna follow the Lord. But I'm gonna be honest with you, Sometimes being a pastor ain't always fun. Sometimes it's not always easy. Sometimes the burden is so great, and I would like to say that my motivation is always the faithfulness of God, but I'd be lying to you. It's not true, but sometimes the very thing that the Lord uses to spur me on in my commitment is to look across the street and see some pastors over there who are grinding in the midst of struggle just like me, and they're being faithful, and that is what the Lord uses to encourage me to continue in my commitment. We don't just need one another for accountability. We need one another for encouragement because let's be honest, living this Christian life is hard. You don't have to be a pastor for it to be hard. Just being a Christian is hard. And if it's not, you might not be doing it right. right? We are in this world and not of this world. This world hates us because we follow Jesus. It is not an easy place to be. And we need one another to say, keep going. It's worth it. There's blessing, there is reward, there is righteousness on the other side of this. Don't give up. We need one another. And so this public commitment... It's significant for other believers as well. But there's a second aspect to why this public commitment is so significant. It's not just significant for others making the covenant with them, it's also significant for the watching world. So go back to verse 28, right? This this public commitment wasn't just made in the presence of other believers. It says, the rest of the previ- uh, people, the, le- the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand. And here it is, and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God. They are distinct. They are removing themselves from the nations, specifically the idolatry, the false worship, and the sin of the surrounding people. And their distinction was meant to be a testimony to the goodness of God to a watching world. We have to remember that in the Old Testament, the people of God, the primary means of their mission was to come and see people, right? We've talked about this when we did our series on, on our mission back in January. Like for us, we've added in a very strong element of go and tell, Right, like We go and proclaim the gospel, but for the Old Testament, for the people of God, the primary means by which they fulfilled their mission to make much of God was to live lives of flourishing under the covenant of God, to follow God and to show a world that it is better to submit to God, that you will flourish, that God genuinely knows what is for your good, and a watching world would see something distinct about the people of God and they would want to come and see what this God is all about. They were to live lives marked by distinction. So their public commitment was meant to be a testimony. Their commitment to their great God was meant to be a testimony of a better way of living. It modeled a flourishing that God intends for all of his creation when they live in covenant relationship with him. This is, the part, this is part of the reason why their commitment was public. It wasn't just for accountability and encouragement. It was also to be on mission. These are the people who love God. These are the people who live in covenant with God. And look at how much better their way of life is. Now, church, i got to be honest with you. I would to God that our country had a church that revealed a public commitment to God that showed what flourishing looked like. Because that's just not the church today. Right, right now, we have a church that is committed to political parties more than the Prince of Peace. We have a church that's committed to their culture more than to the king of kings. We spend our time slandering one another over the finer points of theology and forget the God that theology is supposed to help us understand. I'll be honest with you. I am convinced there are going to be a lot of people with really good theology in hell. Because loving theology is not the same as loving God. And one of the evidence that you love theology more than you love God is you use your theology to demean, to belittle, and to slander other Christians. When we weaponize God's word to wound, we're committed to something, but it's not Jesus. Because the Jesus I know bandaged, bandaged, he didn't break. The Jesus that I know cared for the marginalized, he didn't try to kick them out. The Jesus that I know carried the sorrows and the shame of the weak. He didn't exploit or try to capitalize on that weakness. And we have to be honest that we have a bunch of Christians who are committed to something. But it isn't to follow the law of God through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our Lord. The question that we have to ask is not are we committed to something. The question is what are we committed to? And then the harder question, does our our life actually back up our claim? And so the people of God committed to God. It was proper and it was public. But here's the final thing I want you to see, and then I'm done. Not only was their faith proper, not only was it public, but their committed faith was purposeful. And a committed faith is always purposeful. So what we see in verses 30 through 9 is the intentional commitment to God and his laws. You see, what we have to to understand is that their commitment to God, that their renewal of this covenant, it was intentionally purposeful. It's not this generic, God, we commit to you without any any understanding of what that means. Right? Right? We see it spelled out in what they say. So so what they do is they take the spirit of the covenant stipulation given to Moses and they summarize it there in those last 10 verses, right? So in verse 30, you see them committed to covenantal purity, right? That they'll be distinct from the other nations. That's Exodus 34. In verse 31, you see both a commitment to reverence. That's Exodus 20 and to justice. That's Deuteronomy 15, In verses 32 through 34, you see a commitment to sacrifice. That's Leviticus 6 and 16. In verses 35 through 39, you see a commitment to prioritize the things of God above everything else. That's Leviticus 26, Numbers 18, and Exodus 13. All culminating in verse 39 with the declaration, we will not neglect the house of God. We will not neglect the house of God. And what the people are declaring in that statement is that they will not neglect the place where we experience the presence of God. See, what matters more to them than ease, what matters more to them than comfort, what matters more to them than their preferences, what matters more than anything else is the presence of God. They're saying we are committed to God and to God alone everything they did was purposeful. It was a commitment to honor God by keeping his commandments. It was motivated by a deep desire to be in the presence of God. All right, that was a really technical way of saying it, so let me say it a different way, Michael's way. Nobody's gonna accidentally be holy. You're not gonna stumble into holiness. Holiness requires purposeful, Pursuit. And this pursuit, like the people of God, watch this, it begins with hearing the word. How did they know what God had commanded, what, what his ordinances and his statutes were? Because they were listening to the law of God, they were committed to the word of God. It, it requires a rediscovery of the significance of the word in our own lives. But then that, that, that commitment to the word, that hearing the word, it moved them to worship. And then that worship is what led them to a greater obedience. What I'm trying to get you to see is that you and I, again, we're not going to accidentally be like Jesus. I wish it could work that way. For some of us, it would make it a whole lot easier. But you are not going to, again, stumble your way into holiness. It will take intentionality. That's why James says it like this in James 1.22. He says, listen, be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving yourself. Don't be deceived, in other words, into thinking that just because you hear all the right things, that just because you sit under the right teaching, that just because you sing the right songs and you pray the right prayers, don't be deceived into thinking that those are the only measurements of your commitment to our great God. This is an all-consuming commitment, Again, because if we're honest, for some of us, the only time we hear the word, the only time we pray the prayers, the only time we sing the songs is on Sunday morning. And I'm just going to tell you, that's not a commitment. That's an outing. Our lives are to be marked by a dedication to the Lord in everything. When we wake up, when we get our kids dressed, when we brush our teeth, when we make our breakfast, when we go to work, right, when we argue with our boss, when we do all of these things, everything is meant to model a way of flourishing because we're committed to a God who is faithful. And it takes intentionality. It takes knowing the word. It takes praying the word. It takes worshiping God in every moment. That's why the Bible says pray without ceasing. Right? That's why David talks about worshiping in every moment. Because the commitment is all-consuming. And for the people in Nehemiah 10, their commitment was measured by the entirety of their lives. And they understood that if they were going to be holy, if they were going to avoid the sins of the past, it would take a purposeful pursuit. Now, now let, me, let me be a little pastoral here as, as I bring this to a close. I want to be real clear that holiness matters. The Bible says that without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Jesus says, be perfect or be holy as I am holy. There is an expectation on our life that we will pursue God with all that we have. And I know that messages like that can be heavy. Calls, to, be fa- calls to, to a faithful commitment can be hard, but please hear me. What I don't want you to do this morning is to carry around the weight of your failure to be committed to God. I don't want you beating yourself up if you feel like you are failing to commit faithfully. Because I know our tendency when we hear messages like this, my tendency is to focus on how much I struggle with this. But if you'll allow me, let me reorient reorient your gaze just a little bit like Ezra does in chapter 9. If this morning you feel the weight of a weak commitment because you're struggling with patterns of sin, God is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and He will not abandon you. If you feel that you are in the wilderness, like God has led you down some roads and into some seasons that you didn't want, you weren't expecting, they've been tough, they've been hard, they've been brutal, God will not abandon you in the wilderness because of his great compassion. If you feel like there is no way that God could love you because of your failure, in his abundant compassion, he does not destroy or abandon you for he is a gracious and compassionate God, here's what I want you to see. Here's what I'm trying to encourage you with. That was Ezra or Nehemiah 9, by the way. Your standing with God has never depended on the strength of your commitment. It has always depended on the strength of his commitment to you. And his commitment is strong. Because when we could not get to him, he came to us. And when we could not keep the law, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf. And when we deserve punishment and death, Jesus willingly took our place. And as he died on the cross, as the song says, as his blood was shed, sorrow and love flow mingled down. When they placed him in a borrowed tomb, he did what we could not. And he rose from the dead, having conquered sin, having conquered death, having conquered the grave. So we are free to follow God because Jesus has made a way where there was no way. And your standing with God does not depend on the strength of your commitment. It depends on the strength of his commitment to you. Make no mistake, we don't commit to follow God to earn his love and grace. We commit to follow God because we already have his love and his grace. And if we have his love and grace, then let that be your motivation To commit to him all the more, church, he's been so good. He is a God of grace and mercy, of compassion and steadfast, always present, never ending love. He will not abandon you. Commit to that God because he is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we, your people, would be a people marked by a genuine commitment to you. Not a commitment motivated by, the, by this idea that we can earn your love, that we can earn your grace, that we can earn your mercy, but motivated by the fact that you have perfectly loved us, that you will perfectly love us. God, that you so loved the world that you sent Jesus who lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved to die. He was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. And you have conquered sin. God, you have conquered sin. And you have conquered death. And you have conquered the grave. And we have nothing more to fear. So let us be free to follow you. God, I pray that we would be convicted of our need to pursue holiness without ever forgetting the fact that in Christ we are holy. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.